What's the main problem people have with believing in God? The, the, the main reason people reject the gospel is the problem of evil. If God is good, then he's not God. But if God is God, then he's not good. You ever heard anybody say that syllogism? Really what that, that statement is about is getting to the, to the idea that God is not powerful enough to stop evil or God is not good enough to stop evil. Either way, God is maybe just a, a allowing evil to happen. And if God is not strong enough or powerful enough to, to stop evil, then maybe there's not a God. Or, or maybe God's not good enough to stop evil. Like maybe God is evil. Then, then is that really a God that, that I want to worship? That's where why most people reject the faith. Most people don't reject the faith for some sort of scientific argument. They reject the faith because something bad has happened to them. They've experienced sin or suffering or evil. And this question rises up. All of us have to answer for the problem of evil. Where does evil come from? Like, why do we, why do we, we suffer in this world? And then where is God in all of this? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why in 2010 did 160,000 Haitians die in that earthquake? Why here we are in this COVID-19 moment, but over 5 million people die uh, around the world from COVID-19. Where, where was God when Jeffrey Dahmer and the followers of Charles Manson, when they were committing those horrific crimes, where, where was God in those moments? Was God not powerful enough to stop those terrorists from getting in those planes and flying into those buildings and murdering 3,000 people? Was he not powerful enough to stop it? Was he not good enough to stop it? If God is good, then he's not God. And if God is God, then he's not good. Well, today I want to look at three verses that speak to this issue about where does evil come from and this problem of evil and, and who's maybe to blame for it and maybe really what is the good news in the face of evil. And, and I think these three verses and these questions are really important to us for a few different reasons. Number one, you might be sitting here asking those questions. Maybe something really bad has happened to you. And you're asking, where was God in that? Was he not powerful enough to stop it? Was he not good enough to stop it? Why should I even believe in him if this bad thing happened to me? Maybe you're here and, and maybe you're going to face some sort of evil in your life. Maybe you're going to get a, a fatal illness when you're really young and, and, and you're just going to have to face that reality. Why, why did God let this happen? But if maybe you're not wrestling with that personally or, or maybe you haven't faced something like that, I promise you someone in your life is going to come to you someday and ask you those questions. You're going to have, to, you're going to have a friend ask you why God did not stop her abuser. Well, the first thing I want you to see today is that evil happens because of sin. Look with me at Romans 7 verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. The problem of evil is not with God, but it's with our own hearts. Sin is the problem of evil in the world. It's a spiritual problem. In this verse, Paul is speaking about our relationship with the law or with rules. And if you were with us last week, you know that we looked at Micah 6.8, and so much of that verse is about the goodness of the law, the goodness of rules. God's showed us a way. He's graciously shown us the path that we should walk. And, and there's a goodness to that. We should do justice. We should love mercy. We should humbly walk with God. It's a blessing that we have the law. But also what the law does is, is it was never intended to be this ladder up to heaven, if you will. 
It was always to be this thing that, okay, this is the way that you should go. And when you're not able to do that, when you don't carry it out perfectly, then that should point you to the one who is perfect. And in other words, it shows us our need. Paul says it this way, that I know that nothing good dwells in me. So when Paul compares himself with God's holy and perfect standard, when, God compare, when Paul compares himself to, to God, he looks within and says, hey, there's, there's nothing good that dwells within me compared to God. Even, uh, even after being converted, everyone still has this flesh that indwells us. Flesh is this word that's used in the New Testament that talks about our fallenness or our fallen nature. And fallenness or sinfulness means that we're not conforming ourselves to God's will and either act, attitude, or nature. You might ask, okay, well, okay, what does that even mean? What does it mean to conform ourselves to the will of God? I always go back to 1 Corinthians 10.31 on that question that says, so whether you eat or drink, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So God wants you in everything that you do, everything that you feel, everything you think about, he wants you to do all of it to the glory of God. And when we fail to do that, it's as a result of our sinfulness or our fallenness. Now, you might quickly say, well, that's impossible. Exactly. (laughs) We're never going to do that perfectly. Now, hold on to that because we're going to get to the one Jesus who is able to do that perfectly. But that highlights the the, uh, spiritual problem that we all have. We don't inherently want to glorify God in all that we do. Our actions don't display that. Our feelings don't display that. You see, the problem is actually worse than what we think. Like all of us recognize, okay, are you a sinner? Like like no one is, is really arrogant enough to say, oh, no, I've never sinned. Well, all of us can point to that, oh, you, you stole the pack of gum, you broke the speed limit, whatever it is. But the reality of it is, is this sinfulness is much worse Because the Bible doesn't just talk about these outer behaviors that we do. It actually talks about the condition of our heart, right? It talks about these inner attitudes. Romans 7, 18 says, nothing good dwells in me. You see, sin is interwoven into the fabric of humanness. Just inherently who we are, the sin impacts our relationship with others. It impacts our relationship even with our own selves, and it impacts our relationship with God. Sin is the root of all that, this deep spiritual problem. First, it it impacts our relationship with others. So so sin in this is the broad reason why any of that abuse happens in this world. Now, anytime uh, that, that husband balls up his fists and strikes his wife, because he's, he's angry and he's not dealing with his anger in the way he's supposed to. At the core of it, at the root of it, is the problem of sin. But how we relate to each other, we even relate to each other culturally or, or as societies, right? So even all our great uh, social problems, they have this spiritual sinful root, right? Like, like take racism, for example. Racism, before it's a material problem, it, it's a spiritual sinful problem, Right? Like, think about the issue of human trafficking. Before it's a legal problem, it's a sinful, spiritual problem. Sin is at the root of all those things. Sin also impacts our relationships with ourselves. It corrupts our own personal identities. It corrupts how we view even ourselves. This is the great era of existentialism or the you-do-you mentality. Friends, when Micah does Micah, bad things happen, okay? When Micah does Micah, people who love me step in and say, I don't think you should laugh at that. Or I don't think you should say that. That's what happens when Micah does Micah. When, when, when Micah does Micah, it doesn't lead to like freedom. It, it, it leads to bondage. When I live according to my own desires, that's where it leads. Sin is constantly 
causing us to struggle with pride or entitlement and finding our identity in our sexual desires or our professional successes. St. Augustine said it this way, that our, our loves are not rightly ordered. That's certainly true on how we even view our own selves. But sin also impacts our relationship with God. Romans 1.18 says, for the, way, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So even our sin breaks our relationship with God. It, 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 it corrupts our spiritual lives. You see, sin is the, even poisons our own souls, our own spiritual selves. Well, what does all this have to do with the problem of evil? Well, evil happens because of sin. The reason why evil is there is because of sin. Human sinfulness is the root cause of evil in the world. Sin is to blame. People are the problem. God didn't fly those planes into those buildings. The terrorists did. They're the ones who are to blame. Their, their own sinful actions are the ones who are to blame. Sin is what's wrong with the world. Now hear me, if you're an unbeliever and you say, well, listen, I see suffering, I hate evil, I'm with you. I'm with you on all of it. I, I hate all of it. And hear me, if, if you don't, don't believe evil is real, friend, you're delusional. Like I, I'm, I'm nervous with how you're functioning in the world. Evil is real. Sin is real. Suffering is real. And we have to have an answer for it. Well, all of that leads to suffering. Sin leads to suffering. Creation suffers because of sin. Look at Romans 8, verses 18. I'm going to read from 18 to 23. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies." Creation suffers as a result of sin. Creation is groaning, and sin is the cause of that suffering. The Bible is very clear that creation, all of this present world, is going to be marked by suffering. Now, I put my cards on the table. I don't function that way. Like when I face an injustice, when somebody cuts me off on the highway, I get really mad. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But that's how the world is. That's how this world is. It's going to be marked by suffering. The Bible is very clear on that. The Bible is very clear that this present day is going to be marked by sin and suffering. But it promises a day. It promises a day when Jesus returns and makes it all right. However, this day is marked by groaning. There's a groaning to this present reality. I think Christians need to be realists on this point. I think we need to be really careful not to hyperventilate on this point. Because the reality of it is, is uh, there's so much suffering that we don't experience in this day that people in the past did, right? Like, I think it's so helpful to kind of think about suffering in like a historical context. I was thinking this morning in the showers, it was kind of a cold day, turned on the hot water, the hot water came on, and I realized, you know what, Jesus never had like a hot shower when he was here on this earth. Okay, we, we have AC now, okay, that's why people moved to Texas. But before we had AC, nobody moved to Texas. Now that we have AC, they're all here. Like, infant mortality rate is way lower than it used to be. 
Like I think this, the, the vaccine that we, we've created this vaccine within a, a year, multiple vaccines, this is a modern scientific miracle. What a blessing. I mean, we have things today that they just didn't have in the past. There's sufferings that we don't experience today that people did not experience in the past. However, I think all the successes that we have, it has also led to, I think, maybe an overly optimistic view of this present day too, right? But like we were shocked at suffering. And, and listen, I think COVID-19 has been this great reminder that, you know what, this world is not your home. Like there's still suffering in this world. You see, suffering can be in the form of natural disasters or pandemics. Suffering can come from tragedies like, a, like a, the untimely death of a child. Suffering can come from the decline of an industry or, or, or uh, the failure of your business. Suffering can come from broken relationships. But again, suffering is because of sin. Now, I think we need to stop at this point and, and ask some, some honest questions. On your outline, I just wrote, is, is evil a good argument against God? Okay, there's evil in the world. But, but is that really a good argument in, uh, against God? Can, can, can God be good when so much evil is in the world? Is he really powerful enough to stop evil? Like, I, I'm convinced that's the main reason why most people reject the gospel. But, but is that really a good argument? Is evil really a good argument against God? I think it's important at this point to turn those questions around on those who reject God. Okay, if it's not a spiritual problem, if, if it's not sin, if sin's not the root of this, if that's why evil's in the root, see, we're trying to say this is a spiritual problem. But before it's a legal problem or a material problem or any of these other things, it's a spiritual sinful problem. That's why we have suffering in the world. Now, if you reject that, then you've got to replace it with something else. Like, what is wrong with it? And whatever you place it with, that then becomes the pathway to the solution, right? So some people will say, well, capitalism. Capitalism is the great evil in the world. So if we could somehow maybe do away with capitalism, and maybe everyone had like a livable wage that was guaranteed with them. But would that stop human trafficking? Like if everyone had a livable wage, and, and I hope we do, that's not a bad thing to strive for, but to say that that's somehow the root problem of all that's gone wrong in the world. Listen, if we all had, you know, this livable wage, human trafficking would still be a thing. So is suffering just the result of evolution? Do, do men commit more violent crimes than women because of naturalistic evolutionary reasons? And thus, if an angry man could just pop a pill or tweak his neurotransmitters, then he, wouldn't, then he would no longer abuse his wife? I don't think so. I don't think there's systemic things against men. Why there's like, you know, way more men in jail for violent crimes than women. Okay, is it, but, but is that just like naturalistic reason? It's just that, that's just how men have evolved. If that's the case, well, then there has to be some sort of naturalistic solution. So if we could just pop a pill or tweak our neurotransmitters and everything would work out. Well, is, is materialism the root problem? But like, did those hijackers get into those planes and, and kill and murder those 3,000 people? Is that because they were poor? Well, I, that's, that's not what the data shows. Like Osama bin Laden had more money than like all of us put together and probably the lifetime amount of money that we all make. He had more than that, okay? It wasn't an issue of, of poverty for him. Let's get psychological. Maybe it's your subconscious id. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe if, if we just had like perfect parents, Perfect parents raising, raising these children, then none of us would, would suffer from insecurity or, or be troubled in any way. I don't think that's realistic. 
What about um, our, our sexual frustrations? This is a common theory today. Like some of us are just, there's these, uh, these fantasies that we want to live out of who we really are sexually. And that will lead to like happiness and contentment and just content souls. That's not happening. That's not happening. That, that can't be the problem. What about education? Is education the root problem? Like if all of us had bachelor's degrees and master's, master's degrees, would we then no longer have division in our country? Like, hear me, uh, I'm not trying to straw man any of those things. I'm just trying to highlight that, that listen, uh, the, the nature of our problem is spiritual. And if that's the case, then the nature of our solution should be spiritual. And, and I, I want to be very careful here. I believe in science. <laughs> I'm really thankful for the vaccine. I'm really thankful for my doctor who helped me navigate COVID-19. I'm really thankful for scientists and doctors. I'm really, if you're in the helping professions, man, and you're a therapist, man, I'm with you. I'm a biblical counselor. I, I believe in therapy. I'm so thankful for it. If you're a teacher or a professor, thank you. We, we need more good teachers and professors. I, I, I teach a high school class. I believe in education. But, but are those the root problems that we face? Is that why evil's in the world? Friends, we have a, a spiritual problem. We have a sin problem. You see, we all have an inherent sense of justice. We all know when something is not right or unfair. But why? Why do we have that inherent sense of justice? Where does it come from? Who put it there? Modern objections against God, many of them are based upon fairness. This bad thing happened to me, thus there can't be a God. It's based on this idea of fairness. But many times it's made by people who, don't, who believe there is no God, who believe all of morality is relative, and everything is evolved from the strong killing the weak. And yet they cry foul when something bad happens to them. There's some inconsistencies there in that thinking, right? Tim McKellar says it this way, People believe that we ought not to suffer, or, or we shouldn't be excluded. We shouldn't die of hunger or oppression, but, but the evolutionary mechanisms of natural selection, that depends on death, destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are all perfectly natural. Listen, if that's your belief system, if you think all that's perfectly natural, then why does it feel so wrong when it happens to you? Why, why inherently are you, are you so quick to put God in the dock for that suffering? but yet not put godless theories under the same scrutiny. The, the problem is not that God isn't powerful enough or good enough to fix evil, sin, and suffering. Tim Keller uh, again says, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Further, not only does Christianity provide the, the theology for evil and, and the reasons for suffering, it provides the solution. And, and certainly in this ultimate sense, right? The reason why Jesus got up on that cross and died for you was so that you could be right with God for eternity. So he could bring about this new heaven and this new earth. But also, it's functionally the solution. Like the right here and the right now. Like, listen, the nihilist, they just go to bitterness and depression. Those who just reject God when something bad happens to them, that doesn't go good places. But the ones who trust the Lord through the suffering, then God is faithful to carry us through. You see, the gospel gives us courage. The gospel gives us hope in the face of evil. The, God gives us, uh, the gospel gives us hope in suffering. The gospel leads to resurrection and restoration. What's the solution to evil? The gospel is. Look with me at Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God promises to turn bad, evil sufferings to your good. Now, let me be careful on what I'm not saying. That bad thing, that bad thing that happened to you, God is not saying that's a good thing. God's very clear that's a bad thing. But what he's saying is, is he turns bad things to your good. That's the hope. That's the solution, is God and his grace stepping in and turning the bad to the good. Now, we see this in lesser bad things, right? Like, like think, about if, uh, think about that test you bombed. Like when you were a student, or maybe you're still a student, maybe you procrastinated, maybe you didn't study like you should have. That's not a good thing. Maybe you rolled in there on that exam and you bombed it. That's also not a good thing. But can good things come from that? This was an experience that was close to home for me. Good things came from that. I learned how to study. I can't procrastinate anymore. I gained wisdom from that bad thing. That, that, that's something bad that, that can be turned to the good. We, we see that on lesser things, but we, we see that on greater things as well. However, we can't always know what good will come. This, this is not a, this type formula where if you do X, Y, and Z, well, then this will happen. We, we can't always know the good that will, will come. And we also have to be really clear that that good thing that will come from that bad thing, it might not come in this life. It might come in the next life. That, that maybe is what, how this promise is fulfilled. However, he does promise to keep working for your good no matter how bad it gets. And hear me, even if that bad thing kills you, it'll make your eternity even more glorious. You see, he is the solution because what was impossible for us is possible for him. He's the one who is able to accomplish all these things. You see, none of us have the ability to glorify God in all things. But Jesus did have the, that ability. He, he did live that type of life. And then he paid that debt of evil in order to turn our sin into our salvation. He's in the business of turning bad things into good things. He's the solution. You see, when we deserve judgment, he gave us grace. God's loving grace is the solution to evil. At, at the core of it, at the, at the deep root of it, it's God's grace is the solution. Politics, education, medicine, wealth, they can't end sin and suffering, but Jesus can. Is there anything necessarily bad about those things? No. Is there a place for those things? Yes. We need good politicians. We need, we need good doctors. We, we need people uh, generous with their wealth. We need great educators. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus who can abolish sin, this greatest of problems. He took the worst injustice. The greatest injustice, the, the killing of God himself, the one who is perfectly innocent, and he turned that for our good. Our salvation comes from the greatest evil that ever happened. He took death and he resurrected life. I don't pretend to have all the answers. I don't necessarily know in particular why he did that to you. I don't know all the reasons why she is the way she is. And I don't pretend to have some sort of simple proposal to the complex problems we face. I don't buy into the, well, if everybody would just get converted, then we wouldn't have any problems. Bro, check out Redeemer Church, okay? We're broken people loving broken people, all right? Just because someone gets converted doesn't mean they don't struggle with sin still. But I do know that evil, sin, and suffering are real. And I also know that God is good. And I also know that God is more powerful than evil. And so I believe that in our suffering, we're to draw near to Emmanuel and we're to hope in God. Remember John 1, 14? 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Matthew 1, uh, the, the writer quotes Isaiah uh, 7.14, which talks about Jesus' name of Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us through all the evil, through all the sin, through all the suffering. He's with us. He's especially with us in those moments, which means we are to draw near to Emmanuel in the pain. We're to draw near to him when we suffer. You see, when you're cheated at work, don't lash out to God for not stopping it or pull away from him. Rather, draw near to him. Draw near to his people in those moments. You see, when those memories of your abuse flare up again, don't pull away by praying less. So in those moments, you need to be praying more, right? Like in those, in those moments where, where maybe you get a, a cancer diagnosis, that's not the moment to avoid the calls of God's people. It's the moment where you're supposed to pick up the phone and hear the encouragement from God's people. Draw near to Emmanuel when you're suffering. If you've been around here very long, you know that I love Revelation 21 and that vision of the new heavens and the new earth. Just because it's good. Let me read Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And, her loud, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Friends, when you suffer at the hands of evil, you're to draw near to Emmanuel. And you're also to hope that God is making all things new. He promises to make it all whole and right. Your future is not determined by your neurotransmitters. You're not predestined to, uh, to an evolution of only the strong surviving. The pain of the past doesn't have to dictate your future. You see, God is more powerful than evil. His, he is good in ways that you could never understand. Therefore, we have genuine hope for a good future. This means that no matter the suffering, the way through it is believing that God is going to make all things new and right. Joseph knew all about the problem of evil probably better than anyone, right? Like, have you ever been sold into slavery by your brothers? <laughs> Pretty awful scenario, right? Like, what? One of the reasons why we have confidence in the Word of God is like when you compare the Bible to like other things that were written about the same time, like, like the heroes of the stories look like Superman, like they can't ever do anything wrong. They're, like they're not real people, right? The Bible characters are different. Like they're complex, they're fallen. Like, like Joseph is a great hero in the Bible, but where do we start with Joseph? He's an obnoxious teenager, right? Like that's where we start with him. I mean, he's kind of a punk kid. And so what, what happens there? there? There's a series of bad things happening, right? And we need to call him that. Like, like his, his father sinfully showed Joseph favoritism on the brothers, right? His father's in sin on that. Joseph sinfully, like, thought he was awesome because of it. Cooler coat. I got better clothes than you. Dad loves me more. He was sinfully this obnoxious teenager. But then the brothers, they sinfully throw him into that pit, right? Here's the point. Sin is what led uh, Joseph into slavery and off to Egypt. It was this combination of sinful humanity. Suffering because of sin continued to be a theme in his life, right? Like, like, where does he go when he gets to Egypt? He's sold into this rich man's house. He's doing well. He's trying to be faithful. He's trying to do a good job for this guy. And then his wife propositions him. And he does the right thing, the hard thing. He, he, 
He says, no, I'm not going to do that. Hey, you won't get caught. Don't worry. I, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do this. And what, what's his reward for that righteous act? What, was it you know, greater prestige? Was it more money? Was it his freedom? He goes into jail. He goes into jail as a result of this. Now, listen, I, I wish I could say I would be better than jail. But man, I would be, I'd be blaming God. That would be it. Sitting in jail, I'd be blaming God. Like, like I, I would have all these questions. Was he not powerful enough to stop my brother's? Was he not loving enough to stop Potiphar's wife? We don't know all of Joseph's thoughts as he was awake at night in those jail cells. But can't you imagine the what-if scenarios he was running through? Could you imagine, based on all these things that had happened to him, his, as those memories came up again, wasn't his, his just heart just inflamed with anger? When those guys came, he interpreted their dreams, and then they promised, okay, when we get out, we're going to help you out, and then they were gone. And he was still there. Every, every day he, he faced all that. But, but even, though some, even though there was just very little evidence to believe it, Joseph believed that God was good and God was powerful. In that dark jail cell, it's suffering from all of that injustice, from all the sin of all those other people. He still believed. He believed that God was good and that God was powerful. And then we'd have this opportunity to interpret more dreams. If you go back and read that in Exodus... Like, he's very clear, God gave me this. God told me this. And even in that scene when he is with Pharaoh, it's such a, an amazing scene because here he is with the most powerful man in the world, and he starts talking about one who is more powerful than Pharaoh. He gives God the credit in those things. You see, God is glorified through Joseph's faithfulness and through his suffering. Now, even when Joseph had the opportunity to take revenge on his brothers, and oh, man, if you were in his shoes... I mean, your soul would just cry out for the sweetness of revenge at that moment. I mean, what a moment, right? All the bad that they had done to him, all that had happened to him, and now he had this moment. And what does he do? Does he take revenge in that moment? Why doesn't he do that? Friends, he had spent a lifetime drawing near to Emmanuel and his suffering. He had spent countless days and, and nights when he was wide awake in a jail cell, hoping in God that he would make all things new. And when his brothers finally figured out who he was, and they just quickly went to, oh my goodness, we're about to die. Here's how Joseph responded. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. I wish I could say I'd respond the same way. Certainly would hope I would. He saw all of that in this cosmic reality, all that suffering, all that evil. He put it in this broader context of who God is. He, he goes on in, in Exodus 45 to say, God sent me before you to, to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Like he goes gospel, promises of God, this big picture of this redemptive narrative. He understood all of those things. He had wrestled with all of that stuff. He didn't reject God because of these evil things that happened. He pushed deeper into him. He said, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. That's so otherworldly, isn't it? Like that's, that's so divine. I think that that's beautiful. I think that that's much more inspiring than that, than that God-hater, that bitter person who seethes against God for all the wrong things in their life. You see, I long to have the faith of God that, that he gave Joseph. Friends, in the face of evil, do you believe that God is good? 
In the face of sin and suffering, do you believe that he's sovereign? When you're betrayed, do you draw near to Emmanuel? Further, when you've been hurt, do you hope that God is making all things new? I don't have all the answers, but I do know that God is good and God is God. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this reminder from your word. Thank you for these verses that remind us that you are with us in all things, that you're for us in all things, that all the bad that happens to us, Lord, you take it to to good. Maybe it's not today, maybe it's not in the ways that we want it to happen, but at the end of the day, Lord, we believe that you are turning all the bad to the good. May we be a people that believe that, that trust that, trust that especially in those moments when bad, evil things happen to us. I pray that we would be a people that would draw near to you and hope in you. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.